Well, good morning, everyone. I can't believe we're finally here together. At least some of us are here together this morning. You know, the last time, the last time that we were all together was on my birthday, March 8th. And now here we are, June 7th. So it's been three months since we've been able to gather together as a church. That's crazy to me. Um, I've been asking the question, I don't know if you've been asking the question, but how do we be the church when we can't come together? Have you been wondering that? I have. And I think that we've been learning something pretty significant over these last couple of months, that our connection to one another is a lot deeper than whether or not I attend an 8.30 service or now an 11 o'clock service. It runs much deeper than that. We're still Osterville Baptist Church, even if we're not coming together on a Sunday morning. Now, how is that possible? Well, I think of a special dynamic that I uh, experienced when I was a, a young boy, five to six years old. You, you noticed with the world in the last, uh, say, 40, 50 years, maybe even a little further than that, that our society became increasingly transient. Uh, the idea is that families, whether it's nuclear or extended family, moved all over the United States of America. Some even have moved across the oceans to other parts of the world. Uh, we are a much more global world now than we ever were before. While all of that was happening, there were 10 siblings who grew up in Princeton, West Virginia together. So they moved, they had kids, their kids had kids, and they all started moving all over the place. There were family members who were in the Midwest, some in the Northeast, some in the South, and other parts of the United States as well. And these two siblings decided that they weren't content with the idea of their family not knowing one another. So what did they do? Well, they put together a biannual family reunion. And when I was just five or six years old, it was the first time that I became aware that I was a part of something bigger and larger than my small family unit of five. I'm a part of the Johnson clan. And we happened to be, I got an amen right there from a Johnson right up front. We happened to be all over the United States of America. And I think that as we continue in this process of regathering, we talked about June 7th being regathering Sunday, but really it's just the beginning of a regathering for our family. Uh, some are here, but most of our church family is watching digitally right now. And I want to look at the scriptures today and look at the fact that we are a family, even if there's a little bit of scattering happening right now. We're united by something deeper. So let's ask the question, what makes us a family? Now, when I ask that question, I'm not talking about what is physically required for all of us to be here this morning, because we kind of had to do a lot of things just to get to church this morning. I'm not talking about what does it mean to associate with one another. I'm not even talking about what does it mean for us to do a project together. No, I'm asking what does it mean to be a part of the family of God. And to unpack this, we're going to have to look at a provocative moment in the life of Jesus. Now, you might be familiar with this story. He was 
in his Galilean teaching ministry. He's teaching in a house, and a couple of the disciples come, and they say to Jesus, Jesus, your biological mother and brothers are outside waiting for you. And you know what the thought process is. You think to yourself, that's someone's deepest connection. So you would expect for Jesus to stop what he's doing and to go and associate with his family. But what he does is shocking. He asks this question. He says, who is my mother and who are my brothers? And then, stretching out his hand toward his disciples, he says, here are my mother and my brothers, for whoever does the will of my Father in heaven is my mother, my sister, my brother. Wasn't that an odd statement? In fact, if you're thinking about being his mother and brother standing outside of that house, you're probably feeling a little offended right now. But I don't think that Jesus did that, said that, to offend. I think he was making a big point, and the point is this. Our spiritual bond to one another runs even deeper than our biological bond to one another. You could say it like this, spirit is thicker than blood. Now, how do these spiritual bonds form? Well, Paul tells us in Ephesians 2 that we become a part of the family of God when we place our faith in Jesus Christ as our Lord and Savior. In verses 18 and 19, it says, For through him, Jesus, we have access in one spirit to the Father. So then you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God. When you trusted Jesus as your Savior, if you have trusted him as your Savior, something wonderful happened. You were spiritually adopted into God's family. Ephesians 5 says it like, 1 5 says it like this, he predestined us for adoption. So anytime in any point in history, it is a beautiful thing, right, when someone is adopted into a family and brought into that family. But in Roman culture, adoption meant that a person who is totally outside of that family is brought in as a natural member of that family. And they're considered in every way to be a natural member of that family with all the benefits. What are the benefits? Well, you're taking on the family name. You get all of the honor and prestige associated with being a part of that family. And of course, there would be inheritance involved. So when you think about the family of God, there are benefits as well. Paul says in Ephesians 1, in him, Jesus, we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses according to the riches of his grace, which he lavished upon us with all wisdom and insight. So every member who becomes a part of the family of God receives full and final forgiveness in Jesus. And that's what unites us most deeply in this family. And he goes on to say that there's other benefits as well, one of them being that we have an internal inheritance that we share together in Jesus because of all that he's done. Now, as you think about the scriptures and what it says about family and being a part of the family of God, there are vertical benefits, and that's what we just talked about. Our relationship to God changes, but there are also horizontal benefits our relationship to one another. You see, the gospel 
that changes our relationship to God is the same gospel that changes your and my relationship, our relationship to one another. So let's take a look at these horizontal benefits as being a part of the family. The first is that this family is where we belong. Now, belonging, of course, means to be a part of something, and we all want to belong to something. We want to fit in somewhere. We want to be a part of something that is bigger than ourselves. Uh, my family, uh, the Wheeler clan, we like to express our belongingness to one another by saying statements like, these are things that wheelers do. And when we say that to our kids, essentially what we're saying is, as a family unit, we value something together. Now, I believe that belonging is core to our church life experience. I think that's exactly what Paul meant in Ephesians 2.19 when he said that your fellow citizens with the saints, members of the household of God. As I've been unpacking some of the theology of what it means to be the church, thinking through these things, you know, there's some things that I was looking at and I'm like, I just love this about the church. And then, of course, you start thinking about some of the concerns. Now, one of my concerns with modern church life is that too often churches are run, operated, and treated more like an event than a family. Uh, we attend churches, but we don't particularly feel committed to the people that are in association with us in that church. Um, we talk more about going to church than being the church. We use terms like church shopping when we're looking for church. And, you know, it's interesting. People may even be willing to drive a little bit further down the road if they can find that special place that checks all the right boxes for them. And, of course, leaders start taking note of that, and they adapt to that. And they start making decisions that are more based upon business matrix than spiritual matrix. And so you have churches that are streamlining processes to maximize attendance, uh, encouraging repeat visits and visitor satisfaction. But here's the fundamental tr problem with treating the church like an event. It removes the essence of what church is. It takes away the fundamental essence. And I think this is why one big reason people get so excited about church for a little bit of time and then lose interest with church on down the road. We become disenfranchised because we're not mostly looking for production programs and people, right? Not, at least not people in an acquaintance-level relationship. Because fundamentally, we're not consuming creatures. We are relational creatures. We're not looking for an event. We're looking for a family. So what does belonging look like in the local church? Well, I think the best expression of this that I see in all of the Bible is Acts 2.42 through 47, uh, where we see the church, the early church, living out the family life, the community life. And it's not community for the sake of community. It's community that is deeply saturated in the gospel. So here's what they did. 
the Bible tells us that they met with God together. Verse 42 of Acts 2, they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and the fellowship, to the breaking of bread and the prayers. It says that they took care of one another. Uh, verse 45, they were selling their possessions and belongings and distributing the proceeds to all for any who had need. Now, that is the type of thing you do for a family member, not for someone that you attend an event with. They did life together, verse 46, and day by day, attending the temple together and breaking bread in their homes. They were on mission together, verse 47, and the Lord added to their number day by day those who were being saved. Here's the deal. You cannot eventize what we're seeing in this passage. I can't run business matrix and make people want to associate with one another like that. I can't create rules and systems to make that happen. This all boils down to one word and one word alone, and the word is intimacy. Now, intimacy is the idea that I am fully known and I accepted even when I am fully known. And the intimate church life that we see in this passage can only happen when we choose to belong to one another and to invite more people to belong who have trusted Jesus with us. So how do we get to this? How do we get to the intimacy that the book of Acts depicts? Well, I think it begins with saying no to three intimacy destroyers. Casual engagement, isolation, and wearing masks. Now, when I talk about wearing masks, of course, I don't mean what we're doing as we're following Governor Baker's orders right now. We'll get to that in just a second. Casual engagement is the idea that I relate with you, I'm in community with you, as long as it is comfortable and convenient. But here's the thing you kind of learn about relationships along the way. Relationships don't often stay comfortable and convenient. And if they are only comfortable and convenient, you're not friends and you're certainly not family, you're acquaintances. Isolation is the idea that I just don't make space or a place for relationship. The easiest formula for this is to come to church a little late, leave a little early, make sure that you don't do any of the community life events of church. You don't get into a Thrive group. You don't go to any of the social gatherings of the church. And then wearing a mask, of course, is the idea that I put up a guard in front of myself. Anytime I enter into the space where the church is gathering, I present myself as something that I'm not, that I truly am not. Uh, we talk about it in another way is going out without your makeup on. Do you guys ever go out without your makeup on? So how do we get to this intimacy? Well, it is by being a family together. As we act like a family as the church, we come to have these real types of relationships. I want to look at another benefit of church family life. This benefit, I am calling diversity. Because another fundamental, powerful ramification of the gospel is that in Christ, God has brought together many unique individuals in one body by one spirit to be the church. This is the principle of unity and diversity. It's core to God's overall plan of salvation. 
You go back to Ephesians chapter 2, the passage where we saw that he brought us together as a family. And Paul tells us that a, a central part of God's restoration plan is this, to create in himself one new man or humanity out of two, so making peace. So in other words, Paul says that through the redemptive work of Christ, not only were our individual sins nailed to the cross, but the barriers, the most fundamental barriers that separate us from one another were broken down. In Ephesians verse 14, he calls these barriers the dividing wall of hostility. What's the barrier that he's talking about there? Well, he's talking about the division between a Jewish person who is the circumcised and a Gentile who is uncircumcised, essentially everyone else. In Paul's day, that was the greatest barrier that was separating humanity. But we also have our own barriers that divide us, don't we? And they can be anything. Our gender differences, our economic differences, and yes, even our racial and ethnic differences. God's family is meant to be a diverse family. In his great family, anything that at a lesser level that divides us can become a great testimony to that which unites us. Because anything, any other way that I identify myself, in addition to being a part of God's family, is lesser than the fact that I am united with you because I am a blood-bought sinner by the blood of Jesus Christ. And we'll see in eternity, Revelation 7-9 tells us that this family is going to look beautifully diverse. It says that there will be a great multitude that no one could number from every nation, from all tribes and peoples and languages, doing what? Singing praise to the name of Jesus. Well, church, this theology is especially important during times when this nation is wrestling with issues of diversity race relations and justice in the wake of the murder of George Floyd. Now, the Bible tells us that sin has touched us at every level, including at the places where we are different from one another. When it comes to diversity, we see all kinds of different ways that sin affects diversity. You see issues where there's some groups have advantage, issues where other groups are not. This, by the way, is not uniquely an American phenomenon. This is a fallen human condition phenomenon. Uh, people tend to give preferential treatment to their own kind, and we see injustice due to class, race, ethnicity, age, disability, gender, and it's rampant. It happens all over the world, and it is a complex challenge for the world and the church as well. But here's what I've come to realize as I have delved into the issue of what I'm calling biblical diversity. I think the church has the most powerful message when it comes to the matter of diversity. You see, I was reading a biblical diversity paper this week, and they were dealing with the uh, the common lingo today called political correctness. And I want you to just hear what this author has to say on this matter. He says, often in political correctness, group identity is paramount. 
Group loyalty is the highest good. Each group gains its sense of well-being and maintains its identity as a group by pitting itself up against another group. Instead of discussing their views based on a common set of evidence, ideologues compete for power and for attention. Political correctness encourages people to fight for their group rather than to seek the common good. Now, Christians long for something greater than this when we are longing for biblical diversity, and it all boils down to the Hebrew word shalom. Shalom captures the idea of real diversity coming together in harmonious unity. It means peace, well-being, joy, and this happens when everything is rightly organized under the leadership of King Jesus. That's what we see in the Bible. It values diversity. It deals honestly with injustice because uh, there is frictions between groups in a fallen world. It holds up a vision for healthy, respectful, well-ordered relationships in the midst of the diversity of these groups. So as you look at the scriptures, this is what we can say. Every part of the family matters. So if one part of the family is dealing with things like discrimination and injustice, uh, anything like that, guess what, church? It's the rest of the family's job to show up and to be there for their family members. And to me, that is significantly better than what we were just talking about, groups fighting with one another and that kind of stuff. I love these words from Russell Moore as we contemplate this idea. He says, that doesn't mean that we will know every step that we should take, do we, with anything. Uh, we will need wisdom, and that doesn't mean that we can resolve all the issues, can we, with anything. And then he quotes, There will never cease to be poor in the land, God revealed through Moses. Does that mean that we should give up on seeing them? God quite literally forbid. God says, therefore I command you, you shall open wide your hand to your brother, to the needy, to the poor in your land. Deuteronomy 15, 11. So we are taking a look at this church so far, and we're seeing that the church is where we belong. The church is where there is unity in the midst of diversity. But I want to look at one more benefit. The church is also the place where we grow we need the church to grow. It turns out that spiritual transformation cannot happen in a churchless vacuum. While we might be able to consume great spiritual content on our own, I'm sure while we've been apart from one another, we've been watching preachers that we enjoy, we've been in great Bible studies, those kinds of things. But here's the thing. I can't live out the principles of the scripture that I'm coming to know without the family. I need the family in order to live this out. Look at the passages in the Bible that tell me this, that I need to practice the difficult task of family responsibility. Love one another, John 13, 34. Carry each other's burdens, Galatians 6, 2. Encourage one another, 1 Thessalonians 5, 11. Spur one another on to love and good deeds, Hebrews 10, 24. Now, how can I... Carry one another's burdens when I'm just simply maintaining my own personal, private relationship with Jesus. I can't. 
And, and how can I love the people that I am associating with when every so often I say to myself, I need to make a change? I can't. Because all the deeper aspects of Christian growth require intimacy and relationship. And here's the thing you come to realize about relationships. They're hard. They're not comfortable and convenient. I have been personally hurt by people in church. And I have personally hurt people in church. But deeper intimacy is when I recognize that even though I've been hurt, they're still a part of my family and I've got to work through the mess with them. How do I do that? How do I work through the mess with another person? Well, Paul tells us how you do that because he understood how messy these relationships were. In Colossians chapter 3, verses 12 to 14, he says, Since God chose you to be the holy people he loves, you must clothe yourselves with tender-hearted mercy, kindness, humility, gentleness, and patience. Make allowance for each other's faults and Forgive anyone who offends you. Remember, the Lord forgave you, so you must forgive others. Above all, clothe yourselves with love, which binds us all together in perfect harmony. Do you know what I see in that passage? I see a community, a family, that belongs to one another, that is diverse, and that is growing. Precisely because they've engaged in depth of relationship with one another. You know what is so difficult about the society that we live in today? You are told this. If someone hurts you, you unfriend them. It doesn't matter how long you've known each other. It doesn't matter what kind of water has passed underneath that bridge. If they say, it doesn't even matter if you're right or wrong. If they say something to hurt you, you immediately unfriend them. But what does the gospel say? The gospel says, if you do that with your spiritual family, you won't grow. You can't grow. We've discussed the benefits of this uh, church being the church, belonging to one another, diversity and growing together. Let's look at the challenge now. The challenge is that the family must stay together. Let's go back to the family reunion analogy for a moment. Now, when I get together with family, there are certain things that I expect and there are other things that I don't expect. You want to know what I don't expect when I get together with family? I don't necessarily expect restaurant quality food. But I have to say some of my family are pretty good cooks. I'm not expecting to be professionally entertained when I get together with family, though I do have some cousins pretty good. You want to know what I do expect? <laughs> I expect a couple of my family members to get cranky as the night moves on. I expect the kids to be associating with one another and running around and then somebody has a meltdown. I expect when we get into the house together that it feels a little bit cramped. And you know what else? No matter how peaceful and harmonious it looks, and even if there is like professional quality entertainment over at my neighbor's house, I'm not leaving my family to go move in with my neighbor. Why? Because I don't belong to my neighbor. I belong to my family. 
We weren't made to go to church. That's not our deepest spiritual need. My deepest spiritual need is not a better program. It's not more offerings. It's not a change of scenery. No, my deepest need is intimate relationships with my local family, who happens to be a beautiful expression of the greater reality of God's diverse, beautiful, larger family. And this family belongs to one another. This family is diverse. Every member of the family matters. This family is growing together. In fact, I can't grow without you, and you can't grow without me. I've come to realize I need my family. Families look out for each other. Families are committed to one another for the long haul. They support one another through triumph and tragedy. Uh, families don't make economic calculations. No, they stick together for richer or poorer. So, as we've been asking the question, how do we be the church? We be the church by being a family together. We be the church by being the people who happen to gather at 824 Main Street, living out our vision, worship, transformation, mission. Can I pray for you guys? Father, as we look at this theology that we have been exploring in the scriptures today, the church is a family. I thank you for my family. I thank you, Lord, for the reality that my family is diverse, that we belong to one another, and that we are looking to grow together. As we look at that Acts 2, 42 to 47 church, as we think about the theology of the gospel this morning, I pray, Lord, that as we continue to grow, that you will unite us even deeper as a family than we were three months ago. I pray that on the other side of June 7th that we will just continue to learn what it means to be the church and that you will continue to bring more people in to be the church with us here. We love you, Lord, and we long for that day when Jesus returns and sets all things right. In your name we pray. Amen.